In this week's episode, I am joined by Anthony Papini, who is head of DEI at Active Campaign. We're going to be talking about the Pregnant Worker Fairness Act, Sephora's newest influencers, and much more. Hey there, my name is Bernadette Smith. Welcome to Five Things in 15 Minutes, my weekly show where I bring good vibes to DEI. That is good vibes to diversity, equity, and inclusion with a little dash of corporate social responsibility. What I've found is that there are lots of news stories about what's going wrong in the world and lots of negative data, but there are also a lot of things going right. That's what I like to focus on. I search for DEI stories that we can be inspired by and learn from. My hope is to inspire you to experiment with some of these inclusive actions and policies within your own organization to help you build a more inclusive world. Anthony, let's get started. Hi, Bernadette. Welcome. Please introduce yourself. First of all, thank you for inviting me. I uh, am an avid listener of your podcast. I always enjoy the opportunities when we get to connect, uh, come away feeling inspired and, and learning from you. So thank you for inviting me today. Again, I'm Anthony. I use he, him pronouns. I lead uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion at Active Campaign, which is a, the leading customer experience automation platform based in Chicago but with a, a global reach, 185,000 customers uh, that we serve and help them better connect to their customers. I've been in the DEI space. This is actually kind of scary to say for 22 years now, wow. I started my career in higher education, uh, working with multicultural student leadership programs. I've helped two different universities open their LGBT centers. Back when doing that was this like, very uncertain, unfamiliar phenomena. And a lot of uh, university administrators were highly skeptical, nervous, um, pessimistic about what that would mean. Moved into the nonprofit space, worked uh, with a few different organizations, helping to build uh, bridges with the LGBTQI plus community and education in particular. And then I ended up in corporate DEI. Um, I was at Microsoft for quite a while, and uh, yeah, now I've been at Active Campaign. Actually, this week is my uh, Wednesday will be my two-year anniversary, uh, my uh, AC anniversary, as we call it here. Awesome! Uh, so it's pretty exciting. Happy anniversary! Thank you. Uh, and it's been a fun adventure. <laughs> it always is, right? As long as we try to find the fun in it. <laughs> So um, exactly, exactly. And that's sort of the spirit of this show. You know, I like to have fun with my guests and I love hearing a little bit more about your background because I didn't know about all of your experience in higher ed. And I think it actually relates really well to our topic, the, the lead story um, from this week's five things, which is about the Supreme Court's rollback of affirmative action, race-based admission policies, which have been around for what, 30 years or so. Just about, yep. Yeah. So, you know, I'd love to hear your perspective on that. There is a lot of, there are a lot of folks who are uh, really losing hope. And, um, you know, we like to try to find the hope on this show. So what's your take on this, Anthony? Yeah. I mean, as, as somebody who is a, a self-affirmed, uh, the most optimistic pessimist you will ever meet, uh, it, it, the, at first glance, it, this is, this is a detriment. This is a 
huge loss um, for the institutions themselves and for so many students. And at a root level, the, what what is I think most concerning to me is that I think most people don't understand what affirmative action is, was, is. Um, and if we boil it down, I know very few people who would say yes to, don't you wanna ensure that we have greater equity in our de decision-making? Don't you wanna ensure that we really cultivate a culture of belonging, that folks feel welcome and affirmed, and that we're creating a space where people can show up to succeed? And I think at a, I mean, I'm boiling it down so overly simplistic, but I think at a root level, affirmative action was, was driving that, creating that equitable access. And so, I'm actually hopeful that we're hearing from Harvard, we're hearing from other academic institutions that are saying, look, we are still going to commit to ensuring that our student populations are richly diverse, that we're thinking critically in, in the spirit of the law even, that we factor in hardships, successes, um, and aspects of a student's whole story to bring them to our institution. I think then, once students, particularly Black, Latinx, trans, queer students, uh, broadly are, are at these institutions, what are the programs? What are the services? What is the culture that drives that commitment to inclusion? And that's not going away. If anything, we have to double down. And what I see in the corporate space is we have to then in turn be hyper diligent to continue to drive that narrative that we are invested in bringing in the best talent, uh, broadly representative of identities. Because again, I, and I'm going to use Active Campaign as an example, the 185,000 customers, that's 185,000 different identities, backgrounds, beliefs. Why would we not want as broad of representation? to ensure that we're matching that voice, matching that spirit, driving that level of engagement. Um, so I hope that my colleagues who have remained in, in higher education continue to find ways to invest in creating that welcoming environment and really do hold true to that commitment of ensuring that students, their entire aspect of identity is considered in light of what the Supreme Court decision has driven. I hope so. Um, and I think that there are always going to be people who look to rulings like this to as an excuse to backslide or as an excuse to um, to not uh, care, to not treat others with respect or to not look for ways to proactively be more inclusive. And so I think that's sort of going to be going to be a given. But we know that inclusion requires intention. We know that there has to be a lot of deliberateness to this. So whether in corporate or in higher ed, I'm, I've been really optimistic by or hopeful by the statements that have been put out. Yes, by places like Harvard, but also by companies like Salesforce, Microsoft, and, and some of the others who are saying, you know, we're not, we're not changing anything. Um, I want to acknowledge, though, I'm a white woman. Um, I have a lot of privilege. I have not had to need affirmative action, to be honest. So I just want to sort of say that my I, I have that hopefulness, but I also am aware of the privilege that I have to, to say that because it doesn't directly impact me. 
No, and I think that's an important acknowledgement as as a cis white guy. Mm-hmm. Um, that there, it is easy to remain optimistic and try to put a spin on this, and and that's that's not at all my intention. I think what my hope is, and what I am seeing early indication show is this recognition that academic institutions and corporate employers are saying, fine, we will operate in the spirit of the law. And you want us to broaden our definition of how we make decisions. We will do just that. And and I, you know, just this last week, uh, I was having a conversation with the individual who leads our internship and early and career recruitment. And we got on a call with several academic institutions in the broader Chicagoland area and said, look, what help us understand your framing of this conversation. And I don't want to be sensitive. A lot of the schools were still in the midst of crafting their response, but the response has been one that is a hypervigilant commitment to particularly Black and Latinx students. And we realize the severity. We will not back down. We are committed to creating equitable and affirming uh, experiences on campus. I hope this, again, is that this actually brings to light greater visibility that folks that look like you and I, Mm -hmm. in particular, can pause and say, where have we been devoid of awareness around the impact of and the, the, the force that inequity, discrimination, bias presents itself? And, and how can we show up with uh, greater commitment as proactive allies, dry, lending our voices with, not for, with communities that are going to be most impacted by this decision? So yeah, 100%. I think this is, uh, again, one of those spaces where all right, what does proactive allyship look like? And so many of these academic institutions are led by cis white folks. Um, so many of the admissions offices are led by cis white folks. How do you continue to be hyper diligent to think critically about what racial equity and justice look like in your decision making? Again, in that line of the law. I know for us in this, in a corporate space and an active campaign as a private company, but I'm hearing both publicly traded and private companies saying, no, this does not change our commitment to building an inclusive and diverse workforce. And for that reason, we maybe need to be more engaged in understanding what our partners in academic institutions and in communities more broadly, those individuals who don't come through these traditional pipelines of of academia, um, how do we better support cultivating that diverse workforce. I think that's really well said, Anthony. And thank you for sharing the specific examples from Active Campaign and, and your conversation with uh, the the internship manager. I think that's it, it does give me hope. Uh, and, but let's use that as a jumping off point to the rest of or or the good vibes because that wasn't good vibes. But let's move let's move on to this week's good vibes. The first story comes from Duke University, which is now providing full tuition grants to undergraduate students from North Carolina and South Carolina who have family incomes of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or less. And so students. With from those states with incomes of sixty five thousand or less will also receive aid for housing, meals, 
and course materials. So I kind of love this as the, the follow-up story to the rollback of affirmative action. Yeah. I mean, again, this is a, a excellent example of that investment of bringing, you know, this richly diverse population to Duke. Um, I, if I'm, I'm doing this from memory, so I hope I don't misquote a statistic. I'm, I'm sure somebody will correct me if I do, but I, you know, I believe that the last body of census data showed that overall poverty across populations was decreasing. Um, that being said, there's still huge discrepancies in uh, and in income inequality. So I have to believe that Duke's decision in, in doing this has exponential impact on you know low-income families broadly, but is is going to be a huge boost in terms of when we think intersectionally those low-income communities of color. Uh, from the Carolinas and and making that investment to ensure that there's access to education. We know there's huge inequities in access to higher education and a prestigious institution like Duke, this is stepping up. This is stepping up and saying, we are making this investment. We see the value. We want to do this commitment. And, And I hope there is a narrative that comes from this, again, about uh, incredibly talented, brilliant, bright students from all backgrounds and identities um, and the impact that this has. I, I, I don't know what else I'll say. I mean, yeah. like, that's, that is huge. That is huge for an institution like Duke to do that. More schools need to follow. Absolutely. That's the thing. More schools need to follow. Princeton, I believe, did something similar earlier this year. So we definitely need to see more of it. And, and I think as a result, there will be more diversity. I, I, I wonder too, I mean, again, I, I come back to, there's always been this, when I, from my career in higher education, which, you know, I've been out of the higher ed space for a while, but there was always this narrative of, um, well, community college is, is, a, is a pathway in access. And I think community colleges serve a tremendous purpose and are incredible, valuable, powerful institutions that don't get the credit they deserve. Full stop. Sure. And, I agree. And this narrative that there is only a small population that should have access to prestigious universities, let's dismantle that. Yeah. Let's peel back. How do we create greater equity and access for those incredibly brilliant students who, because of income inequality, would not access? We're seeing today, I was, as I was in the train ride in, um, WBEZ, the local NPR station, was interviewing somebody who was talking about how prior to the affirmative action decision, there was just this uh, huge population of of students, of of women of color in particular, Black and Latinx students more broadly, who had the grades, had the experience, had the determination, had the qualifications, but wouldn't apply out of their own fear and trepidation. And they're saying this, that we have to drive this narrative. I hope this sends a message to students who have put in the work, are incredibly qualified, are brilliant young individuals to pursue those opportunities. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. I think that, and, and, and hopefully it gives those students hope, right? That something to really strive for. Okay. Next story comes from Estonia, the first Central European country to allow same-sex marriage, and about the 33rd 
country in the world to do so. And this law goes into effect next year. Major progress for this uh, region. Hugely so. I, uh, you know, I, I always, my, my parents were born in Italy. They came to the U.S. when they were young. I wish Italy would be added to that list uh, sometime soon. Uh, you know, that aside, major step in the right direction. I think we saw in 2020, 2021, you know, half a dozen countries or so that have expanded marriage quality definitions, uh, so, but regionally that there's been this slowdown. So I hope this shines a light on uh, a lack of equity in the LGBTQ space. Um, you know, and we, I think you and I know that marriage equality is, is but one step in the broader LGBTQI conversation. I hope this continues to drive conversation, uh, not in, in Europe in particular, but broadly globally about what LGBTQI equity looks like. We see huge discrepancies um, in terms of trans uh, healthcare access laws that protect trans individuals in, in the US here where you, know, mm -hmm. you and I both are located. Um, it, it remains true state by state. And so I, I see this story as uh, another reminder that we have a long way to go. 33, 34 countries in that list is relatively small. About a sixth of the world. Right. So, so much more progress to go. But then when you start to pull that lens back, when you look at our LGBTQ equity and laws and protections broadly with employment, um, in terms of healthcare, uh, family access, major discrepancy. So there, there's a, there is a long, I know this is supposed to be about the feel good and it is a huge step, but mm -hmm. in, in my eyes, so this is a, a much needed deeper conversation. And I think you have tremendous organizations like Outright Action International mm -hmm. who, are, who are driving visibility, doing incredible work. Um, you know, m most people uh, globally and certainly in the U.S. might say like, Okay, Estonia, great. Right. So, so uh, again, I, to me, it's no. This is let us let's use this as momentum. Continue to you know drop those marbles to push push the conversation forward. That's where my head goes. Yeah, you know, and honestly, Anthony, all of these stories are a yes and because there's always more work to do. But one thing that I've noticed in in other parts of the world is that when there are federal laws and protections for LGBTQ plus folks that are happening at the federal level, whereas here in the U.S. they're happening at the state level. And so that's a real difference. And I do think that there's an opportunity, like you said, for for Estonia to then make, I actually haven't looked this up, but to make sure that sexual orientation and gender identity are in anti-discrimination policies at the federal level, right? Because you know, here in the U.S., they're not. Um, they're not fully inclusive. So I do think that the opportunity is there. And I think that there's something about the institution of marriage and its, as a, its symbol, symbolism as a rite of passage that really can change hearts and minds in, in a way that is a little bit different than just sort of knowing someone who happens to be gay. Right. I think that there's something kind of special that I've personally witnessed many times I used to be a gay wedding planner <laughs> um, about seeing the, the tears of joy, like the really 
there's always someone at a gay wedding who's never been to one before. And there's usually lots of people right at an LGBTQ wedding. And so there's an opportunity there to, um, to really open people up in just because of that institution in particular and the emotions behind it. No, and, th and that you're, you're so right. I mean, th and that's what drives the progress. That, exactly. That more intimate connection. Exactly. All right. So the next story comes from the U.S. federal government, which now has the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act that provides better protections for pregnant workers in the U.S. It grants pregnant workers the right to reasonable accommodations related to pregnancy, childbirth, and related medical conditions, and ensures that workers can readjust or request adjustments or changes at work to support their pregnancy, such as light duty tasks, more breaks, flexible scheduling, and time off before or after childbirth. About damn time. Why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about this? This is, it. yes, it should be celebrated, but it should have been celebrated like 40, 50, 100 years ago. I, I was having a conversation with somebody ab about the passage of this, the introduction of this, and, and their response was, no, no, that, that already existed. No, it didn't. I mean, there was protections under the Americans with Disabilities Act, but th this is this is a, a powerful step, more explicit step in the right direction. I also something that caught my attention is the far greater inclusive language yes. of pregnant people. Yes, and there again, yes. and that that uh, as somebody who is a cis male, like that that spirit of proactive allyship, using an inclusive language, thinking critically. Uh, I think that's so powerful, so powerful message that it sends, that we are recognizing, realizing, acknowledging, and hopefully celebrating that this is a breath of uh, identities for whom this law is meaningful and powerful. So uh, again, about time. Yes. All right. Next story comes from Sephora, the beauty company, which has announced the members of this year's Sephora Squad, which is an influencer and ambassador program. And 70% of those in the program are people of color. There's lots of queer folks as well. People of different races, ethnicities, religions, ages, body types, and other types of experiences and backgrounds. So I, I love that Sephora has been very intentional about not just representing um, not just putting people, a diverse cast of characters in their ads, but also putting a lot of funding into underrepresented founders and helping them get access to shelf space. They've signed on to the 15% pledge as well. So all of this has been, Sephora has been just really phenomenal. So this is sort of they're, the latest They're thing. walking the walk. Yeah. They, they're, they're stores. We, we live not too far from a Sephora. My husband uh, is a, a customer of theirs very <laughs> Uh, and and I, I'm low maintenance in terms of as I get older, I should, probably shouldn't be. But, you know, when, what I notice when we walk in the store and he's doing his shopping is this movement of much, much greater representation um, across the board you, you, and, and highlighting those uh, producers, uh, those cosmetic producers of color, trans-identified individuals, just just much more richly diverse narrative, and and they Sephora does this great job of telling those stories, but not in a way that feels um, performative. Mm -hmm. Like there's actually action behind it. There's actual investment behind it, and I think that's the thing that stands out to me versus some companies that have said, 
oh, we value diverse representation. Great. What are you doing to elevate those voices? Crickets. Yeah. They put resources behind it that 70% um, representation of, of, of people of color powerful, powerful testament. Keep going. I know. Keep going. All right. And here's the last story from this week, Anthony. And again, it's about damn time. Wimbledon has introduced a rule allowing women tennis players to wear dark undershorts to alleviate period anxiety. So a, a lot of other tournaments have already done this, but the formal whites have been the rule at Wimbledon for decades. So I, <laughs> I don't even know what else to say. This is one, Yeah. I mean, this is one of those that it's, I hate when people talk about, you know, doing things because it's low hanging fruit and it's this like quick visible win, but my goodness, why was this so they, like give up on the formality and the heritage? This is a, a, a greatly necessary move. You know, and again, the the maybe the optimistic pessimist in me says, let's continue to examine what else is opportunities to move forward uh, and thinking about where we're creating inequities in sports. We, you know, before the call, we were talking about how sports activities are such a great community builder, bring very different yes. people together. Let's continue to have those conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. All right, Anthony. Well, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. How can folks stay in touch? How can they find you? Yeah, I want to say one very quick thing. Sure. We acknowledge that I, you know, in, in my career, I think it has been a huge, it continues to be a huge privilege. A part of what motivates me every morning to do DEI work is that as this you know, middle-aged cis white guy, get up to bring my voice, my head, my experience to the table and say, how do I help bring folks who look like me along on this journey to create really active allies, to help them understand the impact? And again, not speak for these marginalized, underestimated uh, communities, our Black, Latinx, trans, women-identified folks, but rather be that critical voice with these movements. Um, and so I, I think it's so powerful and I'm glad I got to come and spend some time to share with you. I'm on LinkedIn, Anthony Papini. I am. Uh, I have given up on the, the bird app, so not, not there <laughs> anymore. Um, but, you know, encourage folks to connect with me on LinkedIn. I think that's the best way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to really, really enjoy our conversations, Anthony. Call to action from this week is to check out the Leadership and Team Effectiveness Assessment created by my dear friend, Latanya Wilkins, who is author of Leading Below the Surface. It's a really great new product and there's a free trial you can check out, but it's a way for leaders to, to understand what is going to help them create psychologically safe teams. All right. Thank you again, Anthony. I hope that you have a great week. I hope that everyone watching and listening has a great week. And if you don't already subscribe, subscribe at fivethingsdei.com. Take care. Thank you for listening to Five Things in 15 Minutes. I hope you found yourself inspired by at least one of this week's stories. If you did, would you mind sharing it with a colleague and leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting platform? And if you don't already get my Five Things newsletter, 
join at fivethingsdei.com. I'm Bernadette Smith, and I'll see you next week right here for Five Things in 15 Minutes, bringing good vibes to DEI.